If you'd take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 1 and verse 1. James 1, 1, uh, page 1208 in your pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. Can you, as we think of this text, can you think of a time when there was an event that you just really didn't want to participate in? It may have been uh, a church event that you just were tired and weren't ready to go to. Maybe a get-together at work. Or some event that your spouse wanted you to go to and you just really were not too excited about it. Then you went and it turned out to be a really wonderful time. And you got back home and had to admit that although you were resistant, that it was a great experience. Well, this is the way that it is with the Lord. Sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we are resistant or we just don't want to do the things that are required of us in our spiritual lives. But every time that we endeavor into something for the Lord, it brings the most amazing results. It becomes a time of great blessing. It'll be a time of encouragement in being with God's people. And it'll be a time of great joy. The reason this is the case is because joy is the underlying element that the Lord gives to his children in everything that they do. And I do mean literally in everything. And that's just what we see in our text today. And it's where our title for this morning's message comes from. I've titled our message, The Primacy of Joy. The primacy of joy. Let's take a look at our text, the first few verses in James chapter 1, and then we'll talk about those. James 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The primacy of joy. The book of James is an incredible piece of Scripture. Some have said it is one of the most often quoted and well-known books in the church today. Now, that's not universally agreed upon. In fact, some theologians and academicians don't hold it in such high regard. Martin Luther, for instance, considered the book of James an epistle of straw and relegated it to a second-class position. Others say that it is just a holdover from Judaism and doesn't reflect the essence of the Christian faith. Now, these positions come from two primary reasons. Theologians don't like the nearly continuous stream of pointed application without a section of prolonged theology. Understandable why they would not be as excited. The second reason, amongst other people, is because they don't like the nearly continuous stream of pointed application because it's very convicting. 
Interestingly, it's reported that Luther would not read the book. I think that he may have been in the second category. That he didn't like the level of conviction James brought. And if we're honest with ourselves, we often find ourselves in the same camp. Even our scripture reading this morning, very pointed, very direct. Yet these are not the thoughts of the Christian reader, or they ought not be. For the church today, again, the book of James is incredibly practical. It's full of perspectives that are immediately and intensely applicable. One commentator notes that it has more imperative verbs in in its frequency than any other New Testament book. Of course, we know that imperative verbs equal commands. So it has more commands upon our lives, and hence the elements we just talked about. Because with those commands comes an onus and a responsibility to obedience. And at times, some of us find that obedience not in existence in our lives. And therein a conviction, which nobody's really too excited about. Another unique facet of James is its brevity. James addresses short, concise elements of application. He comes in, shoots the point, and then moves on. This is why it's so practical. These quick, pointed sections bring what's often called the book of James as the New Testament Proverbs. Quick, pithy commands and instructions on how we're to live our lives. This has given many commentators much difficulty in trying to identify the structure and to qualify the theology in the book of James. James just jumps into the topic and gives you that one-two punch and then moves on. That's part of the practicality. It isn't that the book is without theology, but rather it brings that theology by way of application. Another wonderful aspect of James is its color and vividness in language. James is full of amazingly colorful metaphors and similes that that bring the text to life. Now, some have argued that, that James is not an epistle at all because it lacks some of the traditional and expected elements of an epistle, not having a standard introduction or concluding elements in keeping, for instance, with many of the Pauline epistles. Well, this assessment is true, but James is more, is, is, is more than just a standard epistle. It is an epistle that is epistolary from the beginning to the end. Throughout its entirety, there is a continuous admonition. It's interesting that First and Second Peter... 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude all fall into this same structure. As a result of that, these books have been grouped together in what is termed the general epistles. This is particularly because they have not been the focus of a particular church, as are many of Paul's epistles. Now we could go on and on with the general details of this great epistle, but let's look at a few more of the specific details in our text this morning, that as we consider our title, The Primacy of Joy. And with that, our first point, which I've titled, The Personified Primacy, in verse 1. The Personified Primacy. 
Now, many people will read the introductory verse or verses of an epistle and simply move on. Okay, great. This is Paul, an apostle, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. Grace, mercy, and peace to you. And then move on into what they consider the meat of the apostle or of the epistle, rather. We ought not do this in any case, but we absolutely must not do that in this particular book. And the reason is hinted at in our first point, the personified primacy. You see, sometimes pastors like to discuss the point in question in order to to lead you to understand the meaning of that point. But I want to show you this understanding up front. That is the primacy portion, initially, of the personified primacy. You see, the primacy of this point and this verse is that the book of James was the first New Testament book written. This adds dramatically to its importance. This book represented the first written document giving instruction to the New Testament church. Well, this is critical for us to recognize. In, in this capacity, its style and its form are uniquely suited to bring vital instruction to the church at its initial phases. Additionally, this makes the introduction all the more important. So the primacy of our point is that this introduction is to the first book of the New Testament. And the personification of the personified primacy lies in the author of the book, James. These two come together to make the personified primacy. Now, our first verse identifies our author as James. Of course, the question becomes, does it really identify a specific or an individual author? Because there are actually four possible candidates in the New Testament for who James is in the Bible. That is, there are four figures in the New Testament with the name of James. Now, it's a little like calling across our church for James or for Jim. Could be Jim Fountain, could be Jim Freeman, could be Jim Fletcher, the three Jim Fs. Let's not forget Jim Barry or Jim Hazelwood or or the, the wannabe Jims. Jim Talbot, Jim Arthur, and Jim Gibson. No, just kidding there. But obviously there are many James even here at Christ Fellowship. Also of interest is that James originated from the Hebrew name for Jacob. Through the transition of language from Hebrew to Greek to Latin and into English, the name Jacob transitioned to the name James. In Hebrew, it was Iokob, or Jacob. When that made its way to Greek, they added the O-S ending to that name, so it became Jacobus in Greek. When it went from Greek to Latin, they transitioned from Jacobus to Jacomus. And when that came to English, it became James. So this is how we arrive at this name. But who is the James we're addressing? Three of the four James in the scripture are associated with the apostles. We'll begin with the least likely two first and then move forward. 
Well, one of these that's least likely is James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot. Luke 6.16 and Acts 1.13 both discuss this father of the apostle. He's only referenced as the father. There is no direct action or indication of who he is other than that. And he appears nowhere else in scripture and is almost certainly not the author that we're looking for. A second extremely unlikely person, also James in the Bible, is James the son of Alphaeus. He is an apostle and he's mentioned in Matthew 10.3 and also in Acts 1.13. These are the only direct references to this James other than his mother is identified in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40. There at the end of Mark's gospel. And here, he is not called James the son of Alphaeus. He is called James the Less. James the Less. That was because there were two apostles named James, and the other one was much more prominent. So this one got the nickname James the Less. Clearly, the significance of this apostle is extremely limited, and he too is not at all likely as our author. This takes us to our third candidate, which is James, the brother of John. The apostle being identified in three descending groups of the apostles. This group of four, and, and you might understand that all of the apostles are always referenced in groups of, of four individuals, three separate groups of four individuals. And they are in descending importance as they are referenced in the scripture. You can look at uh, a wonderful resource, uh, Dr. MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to the Apostles, to see a thorough discussion of this. But in the first group are John and James and Peter and Andrew. They are always together. They are never associated with other groups when the apostles are being grouped together. So here we have this much more prominent James, the one who is the brother of John. John and James called the sons of thunder in the scripture by the Lord. And this makes this James a possible candidate for authorship. He clearly was a prominent figure in the New Testament and perhaps could have been our author. Well, in order to decide who is our author, we want to look next at our fourth and final candidate, which is James, the Lord's half-brother. He is identified for the first time in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. And in order to come to a definitive answer as to whether our author is James, the brother of John, or James, the half-brother of the Lord, we need to unpack some other pieces of our first verse. That is, of our first point, the personified primacy. And that piece is in the second half of verse 1, where it says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. The part of first importance for our discussion of the authorship is the word dispersed. This is the word dispersion, or in Greek, diaspora. And the description is telling us that this is the dispersion of the 12 tribes. That is the 12 tribes which make up the nation of Israel. 
We know from this, our author's focus is on the Hebrew people. And this particular book is written primarily to those 12 tribes, to the Hebrew people. It is a very similar audience to what we've just seen in the book of Hebrews. Well, the book is written to Jewish believers who are scattered or dispersed, thus those of the dispersions. But we also know that the timing of our letter occurs during or after the time when the Jews have been dispersed. So, let's look at another place in our Bible to find some answers. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, if you would. Acts chapter 7, page 1095, if you're using a pew Bible. Acts chapter 7. Now, we're all very familiar with the content of Acts chapter 7. It is the martyrdom of Stephen. We know from Acts 7 that the Pharisee and persecutor of the church, Saul, is there holding the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death. And in an act of divine love, as Stephen dies, we see his words at the end of chapter 7, Acts 7 and verse 60, where, he said that, where it says, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. A, a beautiful verse that is worthy of a sermon in and of itself. But as we reflect upon that verse, we want to move ahead one verse now into chapter 8 and see the transition that occurs after Stephen's death. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The time of the event of Stephen's death and this scattering is A.D. 44. A.D. 44. We know this from Josephus and several other extra-biblical accounts because these references, including the writings of Suetonius about the Roman emperors, speak about this uprising that was going on of the Jews and the Romans putting it down and scattering them. But here's something else we need to see. Just a few chapters later in chapter 12. Look forward with me at Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1 particularly. Acts 12 and 1 reads, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Notice that this is, a, is very shortly after Acts chapter 8. And you may say, now wait a minute, Pastor, there's, there's several chapters in there. How do we know that that wasn't a long period of time? Think about the content of those chapters. Acts chapter 8 and 9 are effectively the conversion of Saul. They show his initial action going out after the church, the letters he received. We see a little bit of a, a piece of Philip and his interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch. 
And then we see Saul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Very, very short time frame. So also with Acts chapters 10 and 11. Acts chapters 10 and 11 are Peter's interaction with Cornelius. Again, all within a very few days that these occurred. So the, the material from Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 12 is very, very short in time frame. Important for us to recognize that chapter 12 is chronologically quite close to chapter 8. So the martyrdom of the Apostle James is very shortly after the dispersion. And it makes it too soon for the Apostle James to be our author. There's another corroborating fact for that in Acts 12 and verse 1. Where it says, about that time Herod the king laid hands on them. Our extra-biblical sources tell us that Herod the king's reign, who was Herod Agrippa I, was from A.D. 37 to A.D. 44. Exactly the same time of Stephen's martyrdom. This, or James's martyrdom, rather. This makes the martyrdom of James, the brother of John, at essentially the same year as the dispersion of A.D. 44. So not only is our author James the Lord's brother, but his writing is after A.D. 44. We know that it must be him because, again, it was way too soon for James, the brother of John, to have written. We further see from content how this obviously would have been James, the Lord's brother. We can also further narrow the time down before A.D. 62 because this is when Josephus tells us that our author, James, the Lord's brother, was martyred. So now we've got our timing of our book between 44 A.D. and 62 A.D. It can be narrowed still further as the descent between the Jews and the Christians, which occurred in A.D. 50, is not mentioned. We have a book here that's written to the scattered Jewish church, who also, of course, the, the Christians of the Gentiles are beginning to be a part. So if that was a conflict with James' power and with his succinct nature, you can bet he would have rebuked them if the Jews were attacking Christians. That had not yet happened. And yet that event happened in A.D. 50. We know that the descent occurred because as soon as Paul goes on his second missionary journey, the attacks against him by the Jews, thus proliferating this division between the, the Jews and the Gentiles, even in the church, is sharply indicated. And we can narrow it still more as the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15 occurred between A.D. 48 and A.D. 49. This was between Paul's first and second missionary journey. That was the point of the Jerusalem Council. Paul came back and there was an argument over whether the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to become part of the church and whether the Gentiles should be allowed at all into the church, although that matter had really been established by Peter back in Acts chapter 10. So understanding that this was the indication between Paul's two journeys, that this tells us that the book of James can confidently be placed between 45 and 48 AD. 
And this confirms it as the first New Testament book written. Notice one other element that corroborates James, the Lord's half-brother, in Acts chapter 15. Turn ahead with me just a couple chapters to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is, again, the Jerusalem Council, which we've discussed the content of. And in Acts 15, 13, James is the leader of the Jerusalem Council, speaking following Peter. Look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He goes on to quote some important Old Testament scripture that confirms the Gentiles coming in to the church. But verse 13, he says, brethren, listen to me. Almost the identical phraseology is used in James 2.5, helping us also see the author. But notice something else just a few verses ahead in Acts chapter 15.23. The letter penned by the elders of the Jerusalem church as it is read in Acts 15 and verse 23 says, And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Greetings. The identical word greetings at the end of a sentence. Now normally we would expect that word in a, a salutation, but we would expect it at the beginning. So the connection here at the end helps us also understand this issue, but we might say, well, pastor, greetings, I mean, that's got to be a very common word. Well, in fact, that particular Greek word is not. It is used three times in all of the scripture. It is used here in Acts 15.23. It is used in our first verse in James 1.1 and in one other location. And notice in our verse, turning back with me, if you would, to James 1 and verse 1, that it is in like fashion at the end of the verse, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So we see here that James becomes certainly the author of our book. James, the Lord's half-brother, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church. A position of great prominence that would spur his writings such as such an appointed epistle of application as we see. Because James is there ministering to the church. This is the largest church in the New Testament era. It's been in existence for about 15 years. And James has been leading it. And he is seeing some of the weaknesses that are going on in the church. And so he brings this particularly pointed application as one who understood the challenges that the church was facing and the needs that they had for greater obedience. As we see James' authority, Peter acknowledges James' leadership in Acts 12, 17. You remember when Peter was imprisoned and the angel came and released him and he was scheduled to be the next apostle killed after James, the brother of John. And Peter reports that after Peter is delivered, he goes to the house of John Mark. And as he is finally let in by Rhoda, who thinks it's an angel, then he accounts the story of what's happened and he says, tell it 
to James as the most important one who needed to know these details. Peter also calls James the Lord's brother and apostle in Galatians 1.19. And in Acts 21, Paul takes instruction from James how he is to take a vow before he goes into the temple so that the Jews would not think that he was antagonistic to the law. So James has a tremendous amount of authority in the church. And our first point, the personified primacy, is established. We have our time frame, A.D. 45 to 48, the first book of the New Testament. And we have our author, James, the half-brother of the Lord, who has also described himself in verse 1 there as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our translations have bond slave or servant. But we know that this Greek word doulos means slave. I direct you to Dr. MacArthur's excellent book by the same title, Doulos, to understand the corroboration and the importance of the word slave. To encourage your soul on the blessings of being a slave of the Most High God. Our culture may have badly, perhaps as serious as any time in history, abuse that word. And we a product of that history. But it is not a word that is to be rejected. Because being a slave of the Most High God is the most glorious calling that we could have. So, despite all of these details and James' high pedigree of being the Lord's half-brother, being the leader of the largest and most powerful church in the early New Testament era, his only accolade that he gives us is that he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful expression of humility and acknowledgement of who God is one that we often see in parallel with Paul. Well, this is a pretty stunning beginning, the personified primacy. But it just makes you wonder, doesn't it? I mean, here's the first written instruction to the New Testament church. Well, what would be the first message given to the church? Well, we don't wait long to find it. And it's in our second point. I've titled our second point, The Primary Perspective. The primary perspective. James' first message is one of joy. And and we see that word joy and, and it draws my attention to the book of Philippians. 18 times joy and rejoicing used as a main theme in the book. But this is a different type of joy as verse 2 shows us where it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We mentioned all the imperative verbs in the book of James. Well, here in verse 2 is our first command. Consider or count it all joy. The words all joy are at the beginning of the Greek sentence. And they make it an emphatic and even more powerful command. One version says, consider it pure joy. Wow, that's a statement, isn't it? Consider your trials as pure joy. Anybody been able to do that? That's a pretty tough thing to do. 
Consider your trials as pure joy. This statement, all joy, is not meant to mean that we are to be jubilantly rejoicing in the circumstances of our trials. Great, everything's going down the toilet. I'm excited about that. No, this is not our scripture. It's a, it's a book of reality of how we live and of how we are to live. Rather, the joy is to be unmixed with other emotion. That is what it means when that translation says, consider it pure joy. It is to be joy and joy alone that we are to be able to embrace our trials with. That which is pure and unsullied. The word consider here in verse 2 calls for us coming to grips with the condition that is at hand. Author, pastor, and scholar D. Edmund Hebert notes this calls for a mental evaluation adopted as a result of due deliberation, the conscious acceptance of a definite inner attitude, end quote. A mental evaluation adopted as a result of due deliberation and the conscious acceptance of a definite inner attitude. D. Edmund Hebert is a former professor at Mennonite Brethren Theological Seminary in Fresno, California, having passed away just a few years ago, an absolutely exceptional scholar. Uh, my Greek professor at the seminary said that anything that's written by D. Edmund Hebert, you should have. Let me tell you the same thing. If you are interested in commentaries, and he has not written a lot of them, uh, one on 1 Thessalonians, James, 1 and 2 Peter, and a few others, but D. Edmund Hebert is an outstanding theologian who is one of the few that holds our theological positions right down the line. But his statement here, it is a statement of resolve in your heart. It is a statement that we must mentally assess the trials that are before us and they must be a settled matter in our hearts where we have an inner attitude of joy that comes forth. We must take the reality of our mind and its desire to run away with all of the difficulties of trials. Oh, woe is me, the Eeyore moment. That must not occur. Verse 2 further says, this attitude is to occur when you encounter various trials. This word encounter means to happen upon. It's something that you accidentally become involved with. So these are events that are not those of which are your own doing. The verb encounter is used only three times in the scripture. You'll be familiar with all three occurrences here in our text. Also in Luke chapter 10 and verse 30. In Luke 10:30, it speaks about a man who is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho and who falls into the hands of thieves. Now we all know that that is the story of the Good Samaritan who went down to Jericho and was attacked by thieves unexpectedly. That is, that is the same idea that goes on with this word encounter. The other time that this word, this verb encounter is used is in Acts chapter 27. You'll remember that things are not going well for Paul and his mates on the ship as they try to take him to Rome. 
and they're looking for any port in the storm, and it's not looking good. They can't see land, but they see a beach. And so they strive to drive the ship upon the beach. And as they drop anchors and as they raise all of the sails so that the wind can compel the boat onto the beach, they strike a reef where two seas meet and the ship begins to be torn apart. That unexpected hit of the boat into the reef is the same verb. So these trials encountered are prior to their occurrence or, or, or rather are prior to their occurrence unknown. The word various means multifaceted. So these trials come from every venue. They can come from every area. It's actually, this word various, is the same word used in the Septuagint back in Genesis to describe Jacob's many-colored coat. So it is a coat of a vast array. These are trials of a vast array. They can come from every particular area. Some have speculated that these are primarily spiritual trials. And certainly these would be a prominent source of conflict and struggle. But this can be any trial at all, beloved. Spiritual, physical, financial. This is any of a variety of issues that suddenly come into our lives. The trials which are referenced are those which break the pattern of peace, of comfort, of joy and happiness, as Dr. MacArthur notes. These are trials which are orchestrated also by God. Now, we ought not be surprised by this. Hebert notes that trials are directed towards a specific purpose to discover the nature or quality of the person tested. God's trials are never meant to be destructive or have an evil end. They are meant to refine I love that precious hymn. The soul that on Jesus will lean for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. Another verse, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my joy all sufficient shall be thy supply. Thy trials I only design, thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine. This concept of trials and testing will occur repeatedly throughout the first chapter of James. So we're going to get a lot of introduction to it as we move through the next weeks. Well, James' address of this first command is to the believers of which he is a part as he indicates with this direct address in verse 2 where he says, brethren, actually he doesn't say brethren, does he? If we look down at our verse, it says, my brethren or my brothers. In this short five-chapter book, James uses this direct address 15 times. He continually shows himself a part of those whom he desires to minister to. James brings powerful exhortation through this epistle and stunning and brutal exhortation. But he does so all the while allying himself with them. He continually associates this with himself with the flock to whom he writes. Commentator F.W. Farrar notes that these wounds which James inflicts are meant to be the faithful wounds of a friend. 
I pray that we'll receive them as such as well. But what we have in this verse is an apparent uh, paradox to our minds, isn't it? The various trials, which by definition are those which break peace, harmony, happiness, and joy, are commanded to be reckoned or considered as joy. How can that happen? How can events which are by definition destructive of our joy be those which we consider joyful and embrace as such? In fact, not just to embrace joyfully, but as all joy, as pure joy. How does this happen? Well, one thing that helps us answer this is to further consider James, the half-brother of Jesus. We know that initially James rejected Jesus' teaching. In John 5, it confirms this, where it says in John 7 and verse 5, John 7, 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. James was antagonistic to Christ. He rejected Jesus Christ. Even though James did not believe Jesus, he did grow up with him. And even when Jesus began his formal ministry, James was often with his mother who was following Jesus, as Mark 3.32 indicates. So James is with the Lord all the time. James was steeped in the teaching of the Lord. One commentator notes that James was saturated with the teaching of Jesus as it existed even before the Gospels were written. And we're going to find tremendous parallels in the book of James and Jesus' teaching throughout this book. And that begins right out of the chute here in the first lesson as this seemingly paradoxical condition of having joy amidst that which removes joy becomes very similar to one of our texts in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 to 12. Matthew 5 and 10 to 12 reads, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way the per they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is a joy, beloved, in the, the present situation which is a result of the coming reward. It is the, the promise of heaven, the eternity with Christ, the reality of our separation from our sin, and the mire of this world in which we live, that heaven awaits us as that perfect reward. It's exactly what we saw early on in the book of Hebrews. Do you remember the discussion about rest? It is the rest of this earth. It is the Sabbath rest which points forward to the eternal rest, the time in heaven with God. And then he compares it to the prophets' righteous suffering, those whom the Jews killed. And we go back and we consider, even as we looked in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, those who were sawn in two, who were killed with the spear, and those of the religious elite in Jerusalem at whose hands they died. 
But in the same way as they were persecuted, they counted it all joy to look forward to that time when they would be with the Lord. Do you remember the apostles when they were first arrested and they were taken by the Pharisees and they were beaten and set free? And what do they do? They sing. They've been beaten and they sing. And the scripture says they counted it a blessing to be considered worthy to be beaten. That, beloved, is counting it all joy. Well, this parallel we'll see to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount will be something that comes up many, many times in our looking through the book of James. There are at least 14 direct references to the Sermon on the Mount. We also see James referencing this same goal in James 5.11, just a few chapters ahead. James 5 and 11 brings this notion of righteous suffering as it reflects on Job and says, James 5.11, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Job received the most difficult situation that we can find anywhere in the scripture outside of the Lord. And God blessed him. God was merciful and gracious to him. James 2.12 carries us well to the idea of future reward and trials where it says in James 2.12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. As we go through and we persevere, beloved, in these trials, we will be those who are perfected. We are those who will be approved as a result of moving through them and we will receive that crown of life, that eternal joy, that blessing, that which we will, as we see in Revelation, as the 24 elders took their crowns and laid it down at the feet of our Savior. I can't wait. I can't wait to be with Jesus and to have that privilege. We also see Peter reinforce this idea in 1 Peter 1.6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter understood very well this idea of trials and suffering. And 1 Peter's theme is all about enduring suffering with a purpose. And that purpose is the future hope of glory. It is the reward of heaven. Beloved, this is the primary perspective. This is what God calls us to. When trials suddenly befall us, we must respond with joy. Because trials are a certainty in this life. And we have two ways to respond. And the one that honors the Lord and the one to which we are commanded is to consider it all joy. Now we know the natural tendency. When trials come our way, our first notion is escaping, not embracing. We want to run from them. We want them gone. We want them done. They're not fun to go through. And so we want to move from them. The scripture tells us that we must embrace them because these come from God to refine us. They come to hone us. They come to shape us and make us who our Father wants us to become. And He knows that we won't get there otherwise. Think of the lessons you've learned in this life, beloved. 
Which are the ones that strike most closely to home? Which are the ones that really drive into your soul and that you learn? They're the most difficult ones. And that's exactly what God knows. And that's exactly how God uses them to teach us. It's what we saw in Hebrews 12, 11. It says, no trial for the present time seems joyful, but grievous. God knows how we're going to be. God knows us. Jesus has walked this path with us, beloved. He realizes that our desire is going to be to flee. He knows that these are going to be difficult things. And he says, no, resolve to count it joy. Positive attitude of a Christian is a Christian attitude toward trials. Those that are to be seen as opportunities under God's grace for growth and development in the Christian life. Thus we must embrace the beneficial result of growing as we understand God's plan and these become then opportunities for rejoicing. We ought rejoice because God is making us more holy. He is sanctifying us through this work. And yes, it comes with some pain and it comes with some grief. But we ought rejoice because what did Hebrews 12, 4 tell us? The Father loves every son whom he disciplines. And the son whom is not disciplined is an illegitimate son. This doesn't mean that we seek such trials. We're not out there going, okay, great, let's go find out what can go wrong today. No, we know, as the Scripture told us, these are previously heretofore unknown. But there's a way that the Scripture also tells us to respond. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Matthew 6, 13, and lead us not into temptation. Same word. It's okay for us to be praying that the Lord will not lead us into these temptations. J.B. Meyer, one of the foremost authors on the book of, or authorities on the book of James, writes, one who is conscious of his own weakness may without inconsistency pray that he may be kept out of temptation. And yet when he is brought into it through no fault of his own, by God's providential ordering, he may feel such trust in divine support as to rejoice in an opportunity of proving his faithfulness. The first teaching of the New Testament is a tough one. And it's preparing us, beloved, because there are more to come. But it's a critical first step in the life of the believer. This is the primary perspective. Until we learn this lesson, we're not ready to move on. James brings this as the first teaching in God's word. The first ever written. Because it's going to happen. We must count it all joy whenever we encounter various trials. And make no mistake, although the New American Standard translates that word in verse 2, when... It is the word whenever. So it's not a question of if trials are coming into your lives, beloved. It's when. So we must understand that. And then my question to you, beloved brothers and sisters, is what's your trial? What are you going through today? What's disturbing your peace? 
What's removing your happiness? Can you trust in the Lord? Can you count it all joy? Because this is the command from the first written word of the Lord. May we be faithful to obey.